Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. And welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you're not in this really, really cold weather that a lot of us are in. Oh, my goodness, in Pittsburgh, it was almost zero. But I know it's been worse in other parts, and I hope that everyone is very safe. So before we start, hey, here's my shout-out to Yoshiko Dart. Got to start every show that way. Yoshiko, I know you're saying hi to me right now, and I've told this on all of the shows, but Justin Dart, here we are. Next year will be the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And if you've seen the photograph with President Bush signing it that day, you see Justin wearing his cowboy hat right up there. And he and Yoshika were instrumental getting this signed. And, you know, it just bothers me so much that our history is not known as other histories are known. So I'm trying to do my part, uh, but hello, Yoshiko. And hello, Ireland. Ireland rocks, let me tell you. We have 17 countries listening to the show, but Ireland just rocks it out. So whoever you disability leaders are there, wow, you're really spreading the news. So keep up that great work that you are doing. And our lead sponsor, Highmark Blue Cross. What a great sponsor they have been for the past three years. And also our sponsor um, at the beginning of the year through the first several months is AudioEye. AudioEye, they're a great partner, Bender Consulting, and they have the most fabulous uh, web offering for digital accessibility. So check them out, audioi.org. Well, here we go. As you know, this month is Mental Health Awareness Month, and that is so very important to so many of us. Actually, now more than it has ever been before. And the person I'm having on this show today is a good friend of mine, someone that I really look up to, um, and a friend of all of those living with disabilities, really in the mental health area. So Jennifer Mathis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be on. Well, it's always a thrill to have you on. Um, And I know you know how important all of this is. But Jennifer, let's start with you. Um, because we have listeners throughout the world. How about if you share with our listeners why you first became involved in advocacy for people with mental health disabilities? Sure. So I work at the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law in D.C., which is a national nonprofit legal organization, and we do uh, litigation and policy advocacy for people with um, mental disabilities, including uh, both intellectual disabilities, but primarily people with psychiatric disabilities, because that's where um, I think there's the biggest gap in in advocacy. And so my history is that I first became a disability rights lawyer more generally for people with all disabilities. I went to the protection and advocacy system, actually in Pennsylvania. I started out in Pittsburgh. Um, That's where I started my, my disability rights career. Um, and I went into disability rights law, um, you know, in part because of uh, personal family experiences with disability, including mental health, but really mainly because um, I got hooked early on in my career in disability rights. Um, I, I fell in love. Um, I, uh, during my law school years, worked for Chai Feldblum. Um, who, um, as you know, uh, was uh, a lead lawyer for the disability community and um, helping secure the passage of the ADA. Um, Hi was one of my law professors um, back then and um, you know, taught disability and legislation and 
um, I was her uh, research assistant, and that was really a, sort of a fascinating time to be working on disability rights issues. The ADA had just passed a couple of years before. The law was at the very, very beginning of its development, and you know, lots of interesting questions were coming up. And I just, I fell in love with the ADA, with disability rights, with the disability community. And once I started down that road. I wasn't going back, um, and so I took, um, after I clerked for a judge for a year, I, I took a job at um, what was uh, then called the Disabilities Law Project. It was the legal subcontractor to Pennsylvania's Protection and Advocacy Organization for People with Disabilities, um, and um, just loved that job so much, but ended up coming back to Washington, D.C., and when I came back there, um, I ended up coming, after, we made a brief stop at the... Um, uh, protection and Advocacy Agency in Maryland um, and a civil rights law firm that focused on disability rights. But I ended up at the Bazelon Center because mental health was a particular passion of mine and um, I had worked on some cases um, early on in my career that were re- community integration cases involving people with uh, psychiatric disabilities that were stuck in the state hospitals, Harrisburg State Hospital, Norristown State Hospital, um, and so um, that was really a great time when I came to the Bazelon Center, and uh, it was actually 20 years ago, um, just uh, celebrated my 20th anniversary about two weeks ago. Um, the Supreme Court had just taken the Olmstead case, and um, I got oh, an opportunity to work on Oh, my goodness, wow, what a time. Yeah, that was how I spent my first uh, three, four months at the Bazelon Center was just working on Olmstead. So, um, so that's how I, I got into this and um, have been not leaving anytime soon. You know, um, well, thank God you're not leaving. You're such a great advocate. And you know what, uh, Jennifer, how, how sad in, for us about High Feldbloom Retiring. Yes. Yes. And that was really a, a tragedy. I think, uh, you know, people in the Senate, there were, you know, a couple folks and really particularly one senator, I think, that was determined to believe a, I don't know, false narrative about um, Chai's views. Um, uh, and actually, she tried to meet with uh, that office and they had no interest in meeting with her and perpetuated a, a narrative that really was completely untrue and um, sort of ironic. But, um, you know, Chai was a great leader um, in the, uh, you know, when she was on the EOC, she was a great leader before, and she'll do great things um, on the outside. Um, and, you know, in some ways I'm happy to have her back, um, you know, uh, in the advocacy community. Oh, I tell you, I agree with you so much because she really, well, as you said, she was a major part of the ADA. There's no question about that. Um, and, and it's just, it's just sad. But I know she'll still be out there. I don't know if everyone knows this, but I was very involved with writing the Americans with Disabilities Act. She was a major part of that and, uh, you know, another person in history that a lot of people don't know how much she did, but we do. And we'll remember that. So, Jennifer, you're at the Bazelon Center. How would you describe the Bazelon Center? What, it, what do you do? So, I'm, I should clarify, we used to be called the Mental Health Law Project years ago when we started out. Um, actually, one of our founders was Pat Wald, the judge who just died. Um, but uh, we were renamed in 1993 after um, Judge David Bazelon, who was uh, on the D.C. Circuit along with Pat Walden, who was a sort of major force in the development of, of mental health law. And what we do um, is uh, we do litigation around the country. We do policy advocacy, both in Congress as well as um, with the executive branch agencies. We do education training um, to advance the rights of people with disabilities and particularly people with mental disabilities. As I said, historically, we have focused on uh, both 
people with intellectual disabilities as well as people with psychiatric disabilities. We have kind of adjusted our advocacy over time depending on where there's the most need. And um, it seems to us like in the past 20 years or so since I've been here, um, there's been really, I think, a, a, a big gap in mental health rights advocacy. And so we have really focused more of our attention um, on mental health in, in more recent years. Um, and so we have, I, I mean, I guess that we would describe our ultimate goal or our mission as um, trying to ensure that people with disabilities have, can have the same kinds of lives as people without disabilities, you know, live in their own homes, have a family, have a job, um, and um, be educated in alongside non-disabled peers, meaning in, not in separate classes or segregated schools, but, you know, in regular schools um, with other kids, um, having uh, parental rights, not having their parental rights taken away because they have a disability, not having their voting rights taken away because they have a disability or are under guardianship, um, you know, having uh, uh, opportunities to live in the most integrated setting, to work in the most integrated setting, um, you know, not being institutionalized unnecessarily um, or segregated unnecessarily, you know, having opportunities to live in their own homes, basically, and um, to really live in the same way that everybody else does, to have the health care they need. Um, to have housing free of discrimination, to have employment opportunities, and particularly competitive integrated employment. So I guess that's all summed up in kind of the same kinds of lives as people without disabilities. And we're going to talk more about that when we come back. But right now we're going to break. If you just joined us, we're talking to Jennifer Mathis, the Deputy Legal Director and De- Director of Policy and legal at the Bazelon Center. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high test line of service. For more information, please visit www.vendorconsult.com. MailJet is changing how teams email with the launch of their collaboration toolkit. Create and send emails with your team faster with real-time collaboration and in-app commenting. Learn why businesses like Product Hunt, Microsoft, Avis, and more send millions of emails every day with MailJet at hello.mailjet.com forward slash voice and try MailJet Premium for one month free. That's hello.mailjet.com forward slash voice. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. 
Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. You know, Jennifer, we've talked about this before, but you know, I know, the stigma toward people with mental health issues or psychiatric disabilities it's horrific. It's worse than I remember a few years ago. I wonder, do you see that also? I'm sure you do, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the trends. What, how has, what direction and why has this been taking over the past 10 years? Sure. So I I think you're right. Um, That's something that we've observed here, too. I think that it has gotten somewhat worse over the past decade or so. Um, By way of some background, I think, you know, the... There are certain stereotypes that really took hold, I would say, mostly, you know, later than people think. Like, in the the 1960s was really when you had this... um, uh, widespread notion that you know people with mental disabilities or psychiatric disabilities in particular were associated with violence, um, and some of that I think the research has documented. It's sort of interesting. It was a, an advertising strategy for some of the um, psychiatric drugs that were coming out at the time, Thorazine and Haldol, and there were um, ads that sort of uh, portrayed uh, people with psychiatric disabilities as terrifying, violent, scary, dangerous people. Um, so, you know, and that was apparently that sort of a fairly new stereotype that had, um, you know, hadn't really been so prevalent before. I think people with psychiatric disabilities have sort of the same stereotypes that other people with disabilities experience generally of sort of this, um, you know, idea of people being incompetent, incapable, but they also have this extra layer of kind of this fear um, and and false association with violence. And um, what's happened in recent years, I think that got better, you know, for a while. I would say that seemed to get better um, to some extent in the 70s, 80s with the mental health rights movement. Um, and in more recent years, you know, in part, I think there has been a deliberate strategy um, on the part of some groups to, um, to portray people with psychiatric disabilities as violent in the name of, uh, you know, trying to get more services. And some people have made this calculation. I think it's damaging. I think it's wrong. And it's not founded in fact. But, um, you know, this has been a very deliberate strategy to try to pounce on um, any incident of violence that may involve a person with a psychiatric disability. Um, I mean, people have kind of admitted this, you know. Um, And, you know, to use that to kind of fuel a narrative, a false narrative that, you know, people with psychiatric disabilities are violent, are dangerous, we should be scared of them, and, you know, the folks propelling that narrative forward have done it for, you know, this purpose of trying to draw attention because they felt like it was a better strategy than other strategies to try to get more attention to services. Of course, the I think the downside of that is um, not only is it not true, but obviously it perpetuates really, really terrible prejudices um, and discrimination and, frankly, has not led to better services and just leads to more coercive services and more institutional services. And so um, that is part of what happened, I think. There's also... 
um, <clears throat> a similar, I, you know, an effort on behalf of people who have tried to use mental health to steer public discourse away from gun control measures and have tried to say, well, we don't need gun control we, or, you know, gun regulation. We need to focus on people with psychiatric disabilities because the problem is really our mental health system. And, uh, you know, that has been, I think, an incredibly damaging um, narrative, also not true. People with um, psychiatric disabilities are responsible for the tiniest fraction of violence and gun violence, less than, you know, 4%. Um, so, you know, addressing the mental health system is not going to prevent uh, mass shootings or, um, you know, other violence in particular. But that has been, I think, a very deliberate strategy. And, you know, in the past five years or so, we had a lot of public discourse about this because there was legislation on the Hill that was sometimes known as the Murphy Bill after Tim Murphy um, that really, I think, uh, you know, when it was introduced and when it was promoted, um, was always promoted with um, a recitation of uh, incidents of violence involving people with mental illness and a narrative that basically said that people with uh, significant psychiatric disabilities are uh, can be dangerous, can be um, sort of... Uh, uh, out of control and they don't know what they're doing and they have no ability to fend for themselves and they need to have more coercive services, they need to have fewer privacy rights, fewer lawyers, um, and, you know, more institutional services and um, fewer rights generally. And that narrative, I think, really was was damaging um, on a national level, and we're past that now, but I think that really, that conversation set us back. Um, it also made some of the mainstream mental health groups feel like they um, had to uh, go along, even though many of them didn't, you know, privately didn't really like that narrative, didn't believe it, didn't think it was helpful, but, um, you know, wanted to... Uh, champion anybody who mentioned mental health and thought that, you know, that would be a way, again, to focus attention on the need for mental health services. I um, think it did more harm than good, um, but, you know, that was not, I think, the view of everybody. So that was another factor driving this. And then, um, you know, I think the mental health community overall, some of the advocacy has shifted away from civil rights, um, has, you know, taken a different tack than the larger disability rights community has. And I think we have been very much, as a Bazelon Center, aligned and uh, sort of having similar values with the disability rights community, um, but I think you've seen a lot of the mental health community shift towards just a focus on access to services, period, and it's sort of a very limited vision of basically addressing people's symptoms or getting people access to medications and, you know, not really focusing on people's lives, um, people's rights, um, you know, what, what it's like to live with a disability and um, to ensure that people have the same quality of lives as uh, a quality of life as, as people without disabilities. And so, um, that, you know, that's a very different set of, of uh, ideas and a different focus than just saying, you know, people need to have more treatment. Um, and, and that, you know, has led to sometimes coercive treatments, which is a treatment that, you know, doesn't necessarily advance um, people's lives. And, um, you know, it's not not that treatment is necessarily bad, but it's just, you know, a limited vision by itself to say that our main goal is basically to reduce people's symptoms or to get them access to treatment as opposed to to ensure that people have um, good lives. Yeah, and, and it, I agree with everything you said. You know, it just is so irritating to me that people now associate mental in their words, mental illness with uh, shooting, mental illness with gun violence. No matter what the situation is, mental illness with gun violence. Uh, all, as you said, all this has done is created a propaganda because it's not true. You know, a person would be more likely to hurt themselves than someone else. Exactly. And something else I want to say to any businesses listening to the show today, when people talk to me about this, I tell them, well, you know, people 
with these disabilities already work for you. They have bipolar disorder, depression, um, other, you know, other, other uh, forms of mental health, affoid, schizoid affect. You know, I could go, I have an employee that is so successful who lives with schizophrenia. It working. And I'm going to tell you, the only reason you don't know that is because people are going to tell you because they know they'll be discriminated against. We are not, we are so far. You know, it's bad enough when you can't get people to self-disclose that have, you know, epilepsy. Even people who are deaf try to pretend they're not deaf. But once you get to psychiatric disabilities, forget it. People are not going to self-disclose. They just feel the discrimination that exists. And you know what, Jennifer? I have said this when I've spoken, and someone has come up to me afterwards and said, that's me. I'm that person. Yep. Yep, exactly. And, you uh, know, I mean, you raise, a, you raise an important point, and I think it's a, it's a hard issue because... Uh, on one hand, there are very good reasons why people don't want to disclose and um, shouldn't disclose. Um, and, you know, uh, disclosing often uh, results in harming people's lives in ways even beyond, you know, what they might have anticipated. On the other hand, um, you know, part of um, sort of undoing the prejudice really, I think, necessitates people disclosing on a widespread basis. So I think it's, mm-hmm. that's the number of the problem. <laughs> yeah, and people have the same thing with post-traumatic stress disorder. P- uh, veterans and others at the company, like women who have been sexually assaulted. But if a company knows... I had a multi-billion dollar company. I had a manager say to me, now it's not me, but I know some of the other managers, they would be afraid, you know, of a shooting. And, and mm-hmm. like, I couldn't even believe he said this. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was him that felt like that. Right. But that is sure. becoming, this fear is becoming pervasive, and that is really, really a bad thing. I mean, that's going, I know right now that the unemployment for people with psychiatric dis, uh, disabilities are so high. I've always said I would like to see some type of graph, okay, showing people killed in a robbery, people in a drive-by shooting, you know, pe- gangs fighting, uh, someone losing control in a domestic abuse situation, uh, just a bad person in general. I would like to see all of those shootings compared to people with mental health issues. It's like people don't even realize that exists. You know, right here in Pittsburgh, you'll hear someone was innocently killed in a drive-by. Well, that person didn't have a mental health issue. Right. You know what I mean, Jennifer? Yeah, exactly. I think with every shooting, um, often there's a... As a subtitle, person did not have mental illness. <laughs> if that's the first thing that they, they look for or they assume is the case. Yeah, right. That's the point that I try to make to people. Um, okay, well, Ruderman Foundation. How shocked were you were with those results from the Ruderman Foundation study on how students with mental health disabilities are treated at Ivy League colleges? So I wasn't shocked at all. Um, that study came out um, recently and basically found that there were pervasive practices in the Ivy League schools that discriminated against students with mental health disabilities and really the most prevalent one being that um, students are often forced to take lengthy leaves of absence, um, often on an involuntary basis, um, because of a psychiatric disability. And this is something that we have been uh, encountering and working on for quite a few years now. I think we started 
maybe about 15 years ago, we got involved in a case where a student was um, removed from a dorm, from her college dorm, um, because she had uh, tried to commit suicide and... I think they said there would be suicide contagion, that if somebody, you know, had tried to um, uh, kill themselves in a dorm, that, you know, other people would do so as well, and therefore um, she shouldn't be allowed to live in the dorms. And I think the general um, approach to students who have um, either suicidal ideation, um, usually not even people who have actually tried to commit suicide, but more have just expressed an idea or a thought about it, um, has been this real fear-based approach. And instead of, you know, we'll help you, we're here to help, we want to have a welcoming environment, and, um, you know, we recognize this is a time in people's lives when uh, mental health issues often first surface, and, you know, kids are away from their families for the first time, and, you know, um, we we're here to help. Instead, it's a very much a fear-based approach of basically, you know, we don't want you here. We're scared of you. We're scared of, um, you know, what may happen. And so, you know, instead of offering help, it's sort of, you know, go kill yourself someplace else. Just don't do it here. And, uh, you know, that has been, I think, uh, just a real pervasive problem. Um, you know, we've seen these things come up in the Ivy Leagues as well as, you know, many, many other um, colleges and universities. And in fact, it has been such a widespread problem and we've gotten so many calls about it that we usually have um, somebody on staff who spends a lot of time just focusing on those issues because it's just a steady stream of people calling about that. And um, you know, we've brought a number of lawsuits and gotten settlements. You know, the first one was somebody who uh, was actually uh, checked himself into the campus hospital voluntarily, never had a mental health issue, but his uh, good friend had killed himself. And so he started to think about that and started to get worried and start to think, am I having suicidal thoughts? I, you know, better... See, I, I just want to get some help, and he checked himself into the hospital. And next thing he knows, the university officials are there at his hospital bed with um, a complaint that he has violated the student disciplinary code by endangering himself, and he is now barred from campus and barred from any public buildings on campus, and couldn't go into his dorm. Had to sit in the police car while his parents went up to his dorm room to gather his belongings, um, because he wasn't allowed in the dorm. Um, and I mean, that's, you know, that's not a way to, um, appropriately deal with students who may have mental health needs. And so, um, it's really been, uh, sort of a devastating experience for so many students at a time in their lives when they're really vulnerable. And uh, you know, we now have a project going with Steptoe and Johnson where they are providing pro bono assistance to students through us. We you know, get so many of these calls that they stepped up and said, yeah, we, we'll uh, engage in this initiative with you where you know, we're all going to help students who face these issues um, on college campuses. And um, that's how widespread a problem it is. There are chapters of an organization called Active Minds on many campuses. There's also something called Project Let's. There's, you know, a lot of student groups that have cropped up because um, these issues are so pervasive and they've done some advocacy for folks, but this continues to be a big problem. So I wasn't surprised at all um, to see the findings of the Ruderman report. It just confirmed everything that we've been dealing with for so many years. You know what? That's even scarier. Hearing you say that, that you weren't surprised, is really scary. And after break, I have a couple more comments to make about that. But right now, it's time for Advocacy Matters with our Perry Jude Radisic, where every week we give an update on some issue going on that we need to talk about. And Perry, before you start, you know, Jennifer? Uh, Absolutely do. Uh, I've, uh, 
I have the pleasure of knowing her. Uh, I haven't had a chance to work with her, but certainly uh, lawyers in our organizations have worked with her, both in Arizona and in Pennsylvania, and uh, we're so lucky to have Jennifer in the movement. It's such a pleasure. It is. And, and you know, Perry, why I brought that up, Perry's with our Pennsylvania uh, Disability Rights. Yes, of course. And here we are. You were in Pennsylvania also. Jennifer. That's right. I was there before Perry was there, but yes, and I remember working with Perry back when she was in Arizona, too. Yeah. Yeah, she's yeah. So uh, any time, Pennsylvania would welcome you with open arms. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fact. And the first place you would come to is Bender Consulting to visit us right here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> okay, Perry, we're ready for Advocacy Matters. Hey, thanks, Joyce. Uh, well, we're going to continue talking about employment. Last week, we spoke about employment first, and the states that have employment first executive orders and legislation and how the states with those policies in place are moving forward with their oversight commissions, and we gave you lots of information about that. Uh, today, we're going to talk about sheltered workshops and beyond. Some workers with disabilities are still paid a sub-minimum wage and work in sheltered settings based on a law that was passed in the last century. In 1938, President Franklin Roosevelt, who acted to put a stop to child and adult worker exploitation and to set standards for workers' rights, worked with Congress to pass a law called the Fair Labor Standards Act. The Fair Labor Standards Act is still law today. Ironically, the very law to help workers ended up segregating and paying hundreds of thousands of workers still today with disabilities less than a minimum wage under a section of the law that we know today as Section 14C of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Section 14C back then was intended to provide job opportunities to people with disabilities who were unable to find work in the competitive job market. However, as the law continued, it ended up segregating people and perpetuating the stereotype that people with disabilities could not work in a competitive integrated employment setting. Since Section 14C is federal law, only a court case or congressional action could change that law. What advocates are doing are certainly introducing legislation to change 14C, and we are also finding other ways to increase access to competitive integrated employment so that sheltered workshops and sub-minimum wage are not the first choice for workers with disabilities. Last week, we spoke about employment first executive orders and state legislation. Employment first prioritizes competitive integrated employment over sheltered workshops, and that helps move people away from those sheltered settings and sub-minimum wage. There are two other policy initiatives that have opened doors to competitive integrated employment. Both happened in 2014. One was the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. That was passed by Congress in 2014. Among other things, <clears throat> Youth with disabilities can now access pre-employment transition services so they can obtain competitive integrated employment out of high school. The second thing 
office, offices of vocational rehabilitation agencies have to set aside 15% of their funds to provide transition services to youth with disabilities. That same year, Medicaid issued new regulations under home and community-based services. In general, these new rules were intended to provide more integration into the greater community. One part of these new regulations is a requirement to provide people with disabilities an opportunity for more competitive integrated employment. This includes mainstream workplaces. So Joyce, advocacy matters, and it shows when disability advocates wanted other options than sheltered workshops and fought for competitive integrated employment under policies like Employment First, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunities Act, and changes to Medicaid under home and community-based service rules. Information about all of these policies will be on Disability Rights Pennsylvania's website by the end of the day. And you can find us at www.disabilityrightspa.org. That's disabilityrightspa.org. Disabilityrightspa.org. Let me tell you what, this is such a great organization and we're so lucky to have Perry Jude, and don't forget to make that contribution. Perry, thank you so much for that great update. Absolutely. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Joyce. This is a thing we started doing, Jennifer, on every show, sort of like a CNN break, to give people an update (laughs) on what's going on. Because a lot of times people with disabilities don't really know what's going on nationally. So Perry does that every week, and she does just an outstanding job. That's terrific. Yeah, I want to get back one minute to that Ritterman Foundation study. If you're listening to the show, they went to Ivy League colleges for a reason. They have the most resources. So if anyone could be doing it right, it's them. They have all these resources financially. And that they told students with mental health issues that they could not come back on premises, campus. Like that example that Jennifer gave, I was so shocked. I was like blown away, stunned. And then I tell this to you and you're like, yeah, I know this has been going on. That's even worse. That's true. It has been, I think, sort of a a reaction um, that's happened uh, really in the past uh, 15 years or so. There was a a case that somebody brought, I think, suing a school um, on the grounds that the school, they claimed the school was negligent, um, where the, the student committed suicide. And I think you know, as you see in many different contexts, it can be sort of a gross overreaction and a backlash. Um, And what I think happened in the campus community was very much the sense of, you know, we don't want to be responsible. um, And so, you know, we don't want these kids and we don't want any kid who we think is going to be in that situation and um, really led to some alarming practices. Oh, and a statement by, I think, uh, one of the school deans at some point um, saying basically, I think it was MIT, it was a long time ago, but uh, essentially if you need that much pharmaceutical support to get through the day, we don't want you here. Oh, my God. You know what? All these times I hear these things, I get so fired up. Oh, my goodness, that's terrible. That, that is terrible. And you know what? It would take something happening in that person's family to have a different view. Do you know what I mean? Right. That's, right. that's what exactly. it would take. Uh, well, Jennifer, we've talked a lot about different issues I think we've covered, but I wanted to move on and talk a little more about the Bazelon Center 
what what goals do you have for 2019? Do you have any specific goals? So, uh, yeah, I think we have um, a couple of different kinds of goals. You know, our, some of our big goals have become uh, defensive, really, at this point, um, given that there have been so many attacks on... Um, the laws that we care about and the laws that um, protect people with disabilities and give them rights, um, that a lot of our work really is around preserving things that exist now um, because in the past several years, those, those laws, those rights have been under attack. So, for example, the ADA, and, you know, we spent a lot of time in the past couple of years defending and preserving the rights under the ADA. Um, the ADA is core to almost all of our work. Um, it is, you know, at the heart of uh, what we do, our cases and our policy advocacy, and, you know, equal opportunity is really sort of the, the, the foundation of most of the work that we do. Um, and so, you know, you had... Uh, efforts to undermine the ADA in Congress, um, you know, ranging from these ADA notification bills, which really would have cut the heart out of the public accommodations title of the ADA, um, to attacks on website access, um, really, I think, reflecting a lack of understanding of, you know, what, uh, what it means to have a disability and, you know, the fact that the world has now shifted to a point where you need to have access to the web to do most things Um, and, uh, you know, sort of just there's a lack of concern or a sense of, a sort of lack of understanding about the ADA generally and why we have it and why it was passed and what it means to people's lives and how it impacts people's lives and a sense that, oh, these are just sort of business regulation issues and that, um, you know, it's anything that, you know, we think maybe different from how we do things now or maybe, you know, in any way kind of something we think is a burden, you know, that we, we don't want to do it. And, um, you know, sort of there's a, an effort to take down people's rights along with, um, you know, trying to get out of anything that people perceive as in any way burdensome, whether it is or not, um, a lack of understanding of people with disabilities as, in fact, a an important uh, customer base. So, um, but so you've had uh, these ADA notification efforts in Congress, website access attacks, um, efforts to undermine the uh, class action rules for people with disabilities, particularly targeting people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who are in institutional settings and trying to make it more difficult for them to bring class actions using the ADA. Um, there have been uh, attacks really on rights uh, through the agencies, on um, service animal rights. Um, several of the agencies seem to have targeted those uh, and, and support animal rights, um, those obviously very important to people with disabilities. Um, you've seen attacks on, obviously, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, and Medicaid, um, trying to undermine um, the health care coverage that is so critical to people with disabilities. And so, really, well, you know, we'd like to spend most of our time um, pursuing an affirmative agenda, um, you know, the reality is that actually a lot of our time is spent um, just defending what we have because it's important. And so, um, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say that that was a you know, big part of our priorities is preserving the ADA, preserving the Affordable Care Act, preserving Medicaid. Um, and we do have, you know, some affirmative priorities too. And I think you know, really with respect to employment is where I see a lot of the opportunity in the current environment, um, you know, with divided government, I think employment obviously is bipartisan issue. All of these things should be bipartisan issues, but, um, you know, employment, I think, with particularly um, Section 501, um, federal employment of people with disabilities and affirmative action requirements, Section 503, federal contractor affirmative action in employing people with disabilities. That's a quarter of the national workforce. I think there are some opportunities there. 
Secretary Alex Acosta, the Labor Department, I think, does actually have some interest in, um, you know, moving forward Section 503 enforcement. They just announced that they were going to do uh, 500 focused reviews of uh, focusing specifically on um, 503 compliance. Um, you know, are you doing enough to, what are you doing to advance uh, employment and retain people with disabilities in your workforce? And so I think that's encouraging and we intend to engage um, with that. Um, also preserving um, what is there in terms of uh, WIOA and, um, you know, Competitive integrated employment. You mentioned, um, Perry Jude mentioned, uh, you know, the concerns about the segregated employment, sheltered work, and um, sub minimum wages. And, um, you know, it seems like there have been some, <clears throat> some uh, rumblings about trying to walk back some of the regulations that promoted um, competitive integrated employment under the WIOA law. And so we're Certainly, um, that's that's up there with the priorities as well. Um, and then finally, I guess I would say um, we have some concern as um, these various efforts to look at school safety move forward um, that we want to ensure that um, students with disabilities are not inappropriately targeted, fairly targeted. We had some concerns about the Federal School Safety Commission report that came out, and I actually testified before that commission about privacy rights, um, which I think are critically important um, to students with mental health disabilities and students with disabilities generally. Um, I think uh, some of the recommendations that came out of that commission seemed very politicized and really not um, related to the testimony that was before them. Um, there's some concerning recommendations in the mental health space um, about relying more on uh, outpatient commitment, which seemed to come out of nowhere and certainly not out of the testimony that was uh, in front of the commission. Um, the Florida School Safety Commission, which I think a lot of people are looking at, um, which just issued a report um, sort of r related to the Parkland shooting, um, also had some really troubling recommendations that are concerning a lot of advocacy groups, disability advocacy groups that uh, say things like, you know, any student with an IEP should uh, have their IEP team be coordinating with threat assessment teams. Um, and any student who has an IEP due to mental health or behavioral disabilities should be evaluated by a threat assessment team. The suggestion being that any student with a mental health disability should be considered a threat uh, or potentially danger. You know what, Jennifer? Obviously, it's just one shock after the next. Do you know that? <laughs> and th th thank God. Thank God we have you is all I have to say. Thank you for everything you do, uh, Jennifer. But sadly, we've come to the end of the show. And every show, I end the show with a quote. And it has to be this. Mental illness is not a personal failure. Talk to you next week with Kevin Lynch. This is Joyce Bender. Have a great day. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.